where I'm the pastor, I've been preaching an Advent series on the glory of Christmas, hope, peace, joy, and love. So you get the first of those, hope, and hope from Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to read Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. We're not going to read Luke 2 again because we read that already, but first we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 7. And our focus will be verse 14. We'll begin a reading at verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he grows, or sorry, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. There ends a reading from Isaiah 7. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll focus on verse 6, but we'll read the first seven verses. Beginning our reading at verse 1, the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the, later, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior, and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There ends a reading from God's holy word. Our text this morning is Isaiah seven fourteen and Isaiah 9, verse 6, dealing with the theme of hope. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Charles M. Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts cartoon, the inventor of Snoopy and Charlie Brown, said, A whole stack of memories 
never equal one little hope. Desmond Tutu said, Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Hope is not a new concept. From the very opening pages of Scripture, God's people were looking and hearing of hope, that which God would provide. Hope is what keeps people going in difficulty. Hope lifts up the weary head and the tear-stained eyes. And that is how it works now, but it is how it has always worked for the people of God. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, we read, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Jeremiah gives a bright longing for the further for the future hope in Jeremiah 29:11 For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future In Romans 15 in the Romans or the benediction we hear may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him Our God is a God of hope, and we, brothers and sisters, are people of hope. Like so many great ideas, the ideals of Christmas can be summarized in single words. Hope, peace, joy, love. So this morning we're looking at hope. We do so from this prophecy in Isaiah. Our theme is, our Lord gives hope to the church through the promised Son. Our Lord gives hope to the church through the promised Son. First we'll see the sign, then the Son, then his strengths. So first, the sign. The book of Isaiah is one of the most devastating and also most comforting of prophetic books in the Scriptures. For most of the first half of the book, it is very negative. It is judgment after judgment. But sometimes there's these small glimmerings of good news of hope, and our text is one of those this morning. Isaiah prophesies that the northern kingdom of Israel, with the capital of Samaria, will be defeated and taken as exiles. The southern kingdom, with Jerusalem as the capital, will also be taken as exiles. In the midst of these devastating prophecies, we have things like Isaiah seven fourteen, Isaiah 9, verse 6, glimmers of glorious hope. The setting of Isaiah 7 is that Ahaz is the king of Judah. Boys and girls, think of a a picture of Israel. And you might know that there was ten tribes in the north. And the northern tribes were always more wicked than the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So the land is divided. And there are two different nations now. The nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And the nation of Israel is making war against their own cousins in the nation of Judah. Not only that, but another wicked king, the king of Syria, has also joined with the northern tribes of Israel against Judah. And so the wicked king of Judah, Ahaz, he is wicked, but he is part of the Davidic line, calls out to God. God had made a promise to David way back in 2 Samuel 7 that his son would forever sit upon the throne. And yet we have this wicked king upon the throne. So Ahaz, this king of Judah, 
with the enemies at the door here, was extremely afraid of what was taking place. If your Bible's open, look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2. In verse 2, it says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, so these are the enemies, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He's extremely afraid. And so God, through Isaiah, told Ahaz to ask for a sign from the Lord. What does Ahaz said? I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. It's a false piety. That's not what testing God means. That's not what the prohibition of the Old Testament of testing the Lord. There are many times that God tells the people to test, or God blesses a test to seek God's will. That's not wrong. Think of Gideon, or even the Urim and Thummim of the high priest. Testing in unbelief is wrong. Nevertheless, the Lord is going to give a sign. And frankly, the sign is going to be, God does not need Ahaz. He does not need his help for deliverance. God himself, as God has always been, will be the deliverer. And that's how God has always dealt with his people. He has been the deliverer. Adam and Eve didn't deliver themselves when they sinned. God provided a covering for them so that they would not be ashamed. Moses didn't lead the people out of Egypt. God led the people out of Egypt. And God, through covenant history, would always be the deliverer up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, Ahaz, here, I don't need your help. But this will be a sign, even though you don't ask for it. And the sign is a bit strange. In verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a bit strange. It's strange first because Ahaz does not ask for the sign. Second, it's strange because of the sign itself. The word used here to describe the woman, behold, the virgin shall conceive, is a unique word. The Hebrew word Alma. It's an unmarried woman of marriable age. It doesn't use the normal word for girl or the normal word, word for woman. And the translation of this translates it, the Septuagint translates it as virgin. And so we see then Matthew pick up this language of virgin in Matthew chapter 1, the great fulfillment passage. The initial fulfillment of the promise is that these wicked and invading kings, these enemies, they'll be destroyed even before the promised son is able to grow. God will deal with these enemies. Don't worry about Israel. Don't worry about Syria. They're going to be gone soon. But the ultimate fulfillment, the future fulfillment, is in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1, the virgin conceives and bears a son. We'll call his name Jesus. That's impossible. It is impossible for a virgin to conceive. But God brings forth the possible from the impossible. The miracle of miracles takes place. The culmination of world history 2,000 years ago is exalted in the Lord Jesus Christ. All have been leading up to that point. The hope of Israel, the prayers have been answered, the petitions before the Lord have been heard. The hope of Israel is exclaimed by Simeon and Anna in the temple. I have seen my salvation. 
The great sign promised in Isaiah was fulfilled and accompanied by many other signs. The angels tell the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling claws lying in a manger. It was such an important event that the heavens broke forth into praise in the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. After the angel told them this, a multitude of the heavenly host, do you know how many people, or do you know how many angels rather that was? I read one commentator who argued that it was probably all the angels. Where else in the world would an angel want to be than in Bethlehem on that very night? The multitude of the heavenly host praising God. They sang the same song together as if they had practiced it, as if they knew this was taking place. The hope of Israel has come. The sign has been seen. Joseph was told of the sign, and therefore Matthew 1 says he did not know his wife until she brought forth her son, her firstborn son. The marriage was not consummated, so that it might be clear this was a miraculous birth. This child did not have a sinful nature from his father. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, Mary and Joseph believed. They believed. Seems a bit far-fetched. Of course, God brought forth the possible from the impossible. And God has been doing glorious things ever since. There was a sign given to Ahaz. There was a sign given to the shepherds. There was a sign given to Joseph. There's a sign given to Simeon. And there are signs given to us. There are signs of the times. There are things that are leading up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate today, not simply is it the Lord's Day, but it is Christmas. The first advent of Christ. Advent means coming or appearing. The first advent of Jesus. But the first advent, the first coming, makes the believer long for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not simply just remembering, reading Luke chapter 2, to think back on what God has done, but what God continues to do and what God will do. It is the hope of those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. We had the privilege to come back to visit family for Christmas as a family. We came back extra early because of the storm. One blessing was that we were able to attend a funeral for my wife's aunt. And there, as we gather as a family and and grieve and mourn and, and hearts are heavy, we heard the promise of hope. This is not the end. Something greater is going to come. We grieve as those who have hope. Jesus will come again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and will take you to myself. The greater hope, then, our loved one is in heaven, is that Jesus is coming back. He will return. He will make it all right. On that day, all will be made right. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look to the coming of the Lord. Second, we see the Son. The hope given in the form of a promise is for the Son. In both of these passages, Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6, mention the Son. 
But this might beg the question, could Jesus have been a girl? Maybe you've never asked that question or thought about that. Could it have been a daughter born in Bethlehem? It could be argued that Jesus needed to be a boy as the head of the covenant, the representative of the elect. But more foundationally, he had to be a boy, a son, because that's what God promised. Already in the very opening pages of Scripture, in the very midst of punishment and judgment in Genesis chapter 3, with the great mother promise of Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Many other Old Testament prophecies focus on the Messiah being male. But the ultimate son to be born wouldn't even be merely the son of a virgin. He'd be the son of God and the son of man. He would be sent from the father into the world. He would, def- he would fight the devil and he would win. He would do the very things the first Adam did not do. When Adam was tempted in the garden, boys and girls, what did Adam do? And Eve do? They ate of the fruit that God forbid them not to eat. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by the evil one? Three times. He responded with God's word and he did not give in. Jesus is the greater Adam, the second Adam. He's the one of promise. He's the one who won the victory. He would die as the son of God to make the sons of men sons of God. The prophecy of our text this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, is a positive one. There's good news. Isaiah 9 verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There will be no gloom. There's good news. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Those who walked in darkness have seen the light. Well, what's the light? Well, we know the light is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that great theme throughout the scriptures, but just listen to how John chapter 1 opens. As you know, John 1 opens different than, than Matthew and Luke. John 1 opens with this testimony of the eternal Son, the eternal light. John 1, listen to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So that's Jesus Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. There's the hope. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But to all who did receive him. And this gets, brothers and sisters, at the very most foundational question of Christmas. Have you received him? Have you received him? We know what happened at Christmas, or what we celebrate at Christmas. But singing a few carols or coming to worship does not necessarily make somebody a Christian. You must receive him with the heart of faith. With the true contrition. God, it is not I. As God tells Ahaz, I don't need you to accomplish my salvation. God has done it all. And he gives it freely by his grace. 
that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Not the righteous, but sinners. Have you received him? You must believe that the child prophesied, born, lived, dead, risen, and will return, that he does those things for your salvation. So, dear friend, have you seen the great light that came into the world? And if not, repent and turn to him, and you receive eternal life. When you have done so, Christmas truly carries such a glorious and beautiful hope for the child of God. Brings us thirdly to the strengths of the Son. Isaiah 9, verse 6 tells us what the Son will be like. And there's a past hope that is fulfilled in Christ. But yet there is a, a future hope that we are yet waiting for. Nevertheless, this past hope was often misunderstood. Many were looking for a political Messiah, somebody to overthrow the Romans. Many of the disciples were expecting this very thing. They were, they were waiting for the establishment of the earthly kingdom to be established. He did establish his kingdom. And this kingdom is exalted in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. In each of these terms, there's many sermons involved. But just briefly this morning, first he is called Wonderful Counselor. Some commentators divide those two names. Some Bible translations have Wonderful, comma, Counselor. You can think of the Messiah, wonderful, counselor. One, either way, it's the, it means the same thing. He's the wonderful counselor, unlike any other, unique unto himself. A counselor is a teacher endowed with wisdom. Where should we go, dear friends, to seek wisdom then at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, wisdom personified? John Calvin says, wisdom is to be found in the gospel. Quote, all that is necessary for salvation is opened up by Christ in such a manner and explained with such familiarity that he addresses the disciples no longer as servants, but as friends. Every believer can testify of Jesus counseling their hearts. Look to him. He will be called wonderful counselor. Colossians 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The wonder-working God has sent forth Jesus, a wonderful counselor. Do you need counsel for your soul? Jesus is the great teacher, the great counselor, the great advocate. He was in his life. No one taught like him. No one had the authority like him. And he still continues to teach he still continues to teach our hearts through his word and spirit, through the preaching of the gospel from this pulpit. He counsels those who need his counsel so greatly. The second strength is in the name Mighty God. Already back in Isaiah 7, the child, the virgin would bring forth, would be called Emmanuel. And that name we know means God with us. Matthew says that in Matthew chapter 1. God with us. For unto us a child is born, and he shall be called Mighty God. The reason why that is important, Mighty God, is because the battle is great, and the enemy is strong. Death, sin, 
and even Satan himself. God give us the armor in Ephesians 6. The king, the king of this kingdom is not going to be like the wicked king Ahaz who was unable to defend himself or to defend his people or to defend his family. Rather, this king would become the king of kings, be called the Lord of lords. In the midst of battle, who greater to have on your side the one and only true mighty God? The third strength is in the name Everlasting Father. And this is possibly the most confusing of the names given to the Messiah here. Certainly Jesus is one with the Father, but they are to be distinguished from each other. The Father is not the Son, correct? He's called Everlasting Father in Isaiah 9, 6. Because though he is the Son, he still has a fatherly care for his people. He is the Father of redemption from eternity. Matthew Henry says, quote, His fatherly care of his people and tenderness toward them are everlasting. He is the author of everlasting life and happiness to them, and so is the Father of a blessed eternity to them. He is the everlasting Father. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and fourth, the Prince of Peace. Peace, to the Jewish mind, means rest and joy. It's the most desirable of qualities. Jesus will be the peace, the shalom of God. And this idea carries with it the concept of prosperity. Spiritual prosperity. And an eternal inheritance set in heaven for you. But think a bit deeper about this understanding of Christ as the Prince of Peace. Calvin says this peace is of the same nature with that of the kingdom, for it resides chiefly in the consciences. How does the peace of Christ show itself? In world peace? No. Otherwise he would have failed. There's been war after war, and there will continue to be wars. Not that type of peace. Though we pray for the cessation of war. But that's not the peace that the Prince of Peace brings. The type of peace the Prince of Peace brings, we find in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, explained this way. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. The peace of God and peace with God. You cannot have the peace of God if you do not have peace with God. This is the peace of John 15. My peace I leave with you, Jesus says. When this peace of God dwells in us richly, we are then and only then enabled by God's grace to weather the storms of life and patiently endure every kind of adversity. This is the nature of this peace. What is the length or duration of it? It will be an eternal peace because this king brings forth an eternal kingdom as had been promised of old. Of the increase and of his government and peace, there will be no end. The angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, of his kingdom there shall be no end. He will be the eternal king. This is what he's called. And so now, brothers and sisters, take this teaching and apply it to your hearts by thinking on these names of our blessed Redeemer. When we find ourselves in a situation where things look dark, 
and deep gloom is on the horizon. Nothing seems to be going right, and we feel so very weak. Remember that he's called the Wonderful Counselor. For he knows how to help his people. He knows the very counsel our souls need. Seek it from him. His power and his greatness are beyond what we can conceive. When we need counsel, remember he's called the wonderful counselor. When we need strength and might in our callings, and we feel so beat down oftentimes, let us remember that he is the mighty God. And in our weakness, in our weakness, his strength is that much more magnified. And let us also remember that when we get caught up in the busyness of life, and life in a very fickle world, let us remember he has eternity in his hands. He's called Everlasting Father, a Father who eternally loves and upholds those who are his with such a tender care that our very souls need. And when the evil one seeks to confuse our conscience and tempt our hearts and lead us astray, when the night of doubt or the struggle with sin is the strongest and the battle is fierce, remember that he is the Prince of Peace. He is in control. You see, brothers and sisters, that there is, there is a past and a present and a future reality of each of the aspect of each of these names. The names given to the Son born unto us. And so let us remember this as we live with those as those who have a true and a living hope. After all, what greater hope can we possibly have that Jesus was and is and will always be Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Let us call upon the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are so good. And we thank you for these beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah, words of hope. In the midst of sorrow and brokenness, we might lift up our eyes and our hearts to you. Give us hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. And so we ask, Father, that you might apply your word to our hearts. Equip us and strengthen us. And may on this Christmas day, our hearts be so filled with hope. That we might have hope on our lips. We might speak of the good news of great joy. The Savior is born. The Savior from sin. And the glorious work that he has accomplished. And so we thank you for all of your mercies to us in Jesus Christ. Work a mighty work by the work of your Holy Spirit. Bless and keep us now. Bless our worship. Bless this Lord's day. And we thank you for all the blessings we have in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.